are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Taxi Driver, which came out in 1976. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. It stars Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Albert Brooks, Harvey Keitel, Leonard Harris, Peter Boyle, and Sybil Shepard. The genre would be psychological thriller. You talking to me? After his first film, they called him a brilliant new star. You talking to me? When he finished Mean Streets, they said he was a genius. Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? For The Godfather Part Two, they gave him an Academy Award. Well, I'm the only one here. Now, Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. In Martin Scorsese's controversial new film, Taxi Driver. That taxi driver's been staring at us. Taxi Driver. How much for everything? Three fifty for the Magnum. 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. Getting ready for the one moment in his life that will have any meaning. You talking to me? Robert De Niro is the taxi driver. You talking to me? In the most chilling performance you will ever see. Who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Taxi driver. Well, I'm the only one here. Rated R restricted. Is this Scorsese's best movie? Could be. It's definitely in the top two for me with Goodfellas. I'm always torn as to which is better. Goodfellas is certainly the more enjoyable movie, though this one is leaner and more focused. It was definitely ahead of its time. And you definitely have the DNA in this film for 40 plus years of, quote, man on the edge stories. From The King of Comedy, to Falling Down, to Fight Club, to One Hour Photo, to yes, Joker. And I happen to love all of those films because even though they're not on its level, like Taxi Driver, they tap into something that we all feel at times. Loneliness isolation, and naturally anger. And the anger part is always the most cinematic, of course. Usually our favorite part of several of the films listed above, including this one, is when we see our anti-hero finally lash out. And part of what makes what Scorsese did here so effective is we see how easily that portion could have been avoided. Travis Bickle is not remotely a normal person, but he can at least be relatively convincing at playing one in public. Hell, the first 40 minutes of this movie almost plays as a very awkward romantic comedy between him and Betsy, played bemusingly by Sybil Shepard. And I felt when I walked in that there was something between us. There was an impulse that we were both following. So that gave me the right to come in and talk to you. Otherwise, I never would have felt that I had the right to talk to you or say anything to you. I never would have had the courage to talk to you. And with him, I felt there was nothing and I could sense it. And when I walked in, I knew I was right. Did you feel that way? I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Where are you from? Upstate. That fellow you work with, I don't like him. I, not that I don't like him, I, I just think he's silly. I don't think he respects you. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. De Niro plays all of those earlier scenes with a quiet grace that you just can't help but initially root for him. And they make the latter scenes that much more effective. Travis Bickle's story sneaks up on you gradually, and that's also a credit to the masterful screenplay by Paul Schrader. Loneliness has followed me my whole life, everywhere. Bars and cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. And God's the only man. June 8th. My life has taken another turn again. 
The days move along with regularity, over and over. One day indistinguishable from the next. A long, continuous chain. And suddenly, there is a change. And then Jodie Foster's 12-year-old prostitute, Iris, starts to become more central to the story. Jodie Foster's performance takes this film to the next level, and it still boggles the mind how she pulled this character off and how Scorsese and crew were able to thread a very, very delicate needle with her story without appearing exploitive. Who's a killer? That guy Sport's a killer. That's who's a killer. Sport never killed him. He killed someone. He's a Libra. He's a what? I'm a Libra, too. That's why we get along so well. He looks like a killer to me. I think that... The cancers make the best lovers, but God, my whole family are air signs. He's also a dope shooter. So what makes you so high and mighty? Will you tell me that? Didn't you ever try looking at your own eyeballs in the mirror? The last half hour of the film gets increasingly insane, but none of it feels inevitable. Just kind of random. You see, Travis Bickle was not driven towards becoming a mohawked Avenger with a sidearm weapon powered by a drawer hinge by society or one particular event when he was wronged. He was simply looking for incident. And with no idea how to relate to others, he simply found it. Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let... Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. Here is. Scorsese would, of course, venture into similar thematic territory again and again throughout his career, as would De Niro. But everyone involved was truly at the top of their game to tell a singular story that was often imitated, though never matched. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. The legendary Bernard Herrmann composed what would be his final score for this movie, and it's sublime, one of the best aspects of the movie. Very experimental at times, often very jazzy, filled with saxophone. The music almost provides its own running commentary in the background throughout the movie. For me, the highlight has to be the main titles over the film's opening credits. We see images of driving through wet city streets filled with loads of fog and or steam, alternating with close-ups of De Niro's eyes as he is the one driving. Even though it's not particularly melodic, this music perfectly sets the tone of danger and chaos for the remainder of the movie. Which brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent, the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Taxi Driver was released during what many consider to be one of the greatest years in the history of cinema. I mean, 1976 was just stacked with iconic movies, including Carrie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Logan's Run, The Omen, A Star is Born. No, not that one. This one starred Barbara Streisand. King Kong. No, not that one. This one starred Jeff Bridges. And previous episode, Marathon Man. 
And at the Oscars, wow. You had some fierce competition from several all-time classics. The Best Picture nominees were previous episode All the President's Men, Network, Rocky, Bound for Glory, and this film, of course. I mean, just a murderous row of talented filmmakers at the peak of their powers. The nominees for Best Director that year were Ingmar Berman, Sidney Lumet, Alan J. Pakula, John G. Avildsen for Rocky, and Lena Wertmuller. Hey, hold on a second. Someone's missing. Yeah, amazingly, Martin Scorsese was not nominated for Best Director, which is crazy. I mean, granted, at this time, he was not as well-known nor as revered as he is today. But still, this was a pretty egregious snub for what might be the best film he has directed and one of the most seminal films of the 1970s. The person who won? John G. Avildsen for Rocky. Okay, but not the best. It really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go to distance. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Just about every scene and or sequence in this movie has been dissected and celebrated over and over for decades now. So it's genuinely difficult to narrow this category down. Though try, I will. From my perspective, there are actually two sort of bookend scenes which best demonstrate not only the excellence of Scorsese's direction and Schrader's script, but also just how impressively natural of a performance that De Niro gives as Travis Bickle. The first one of these scenes is relatively early in the film, as Travis finally works up the nerve of pulling his cab over by the Palantine campaign headquarters and walks up to Betsy to ask her out. Now, he does use the initial ruse of pretending to want to volunteer for the campaign when he first approaches her, and her co-worker played comically well by a young Afroed Albert Brooks in, I believe, his first on-screen appearance. But once Biggles starts talking to Betsy one-on-one, he comes off as warm, direct, and dare I say, even charming. (laughs) During one rewatch of this movie, which was probably the first time I had seen it in years, and I remember thinking, wow, Travis has got some game. Then what exactly do you want? Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. And it means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? Yeah. I mean, we are seeing this lonely person attempt to make a connection, and not only is it well-acted, but it's thanks to stellar work from DP Michael Chapman. We almost feel as if we are just floating a bit above each of these characters while they talk. Now, of course, since I'm going the bookend route here, my other choice could be considered fairly obvious. And I'm certainly not the first person to point this one out. Guilty as charged. None other than the late, great Roger Ebert famously wrote about the brilliance of this scene in his review 46 years ago. I'm referring to a scene that's roughly 30 minutes later after that meet, when Travis is now calling Betsy on an indoor payphone. This is a few days after their official first and last date. It was pretty bad. It's clear off the bat that Betsy is no longer interested in Travis, even though we can only hear his voice. After all, who could blame her after that date? It's very awkward as we hear Travis attempting to ask her out again, while also apologizing. But what's even more awkward, and arguably more memorable, is how the camera shifts away from Travis halfway through that call. It shifts over to the empty hallway next to him. And the camera just stays static on that empty hallway as we hear the remainder of this conversation. 
Been working hard. I was, yeah. uh, would you like to have uh, some dinner uh, with me um, in the next, you know, a few days or something? Well, how about just a cup of coffee? I come by the, uh, the headquarters or something, and we could. Uh... Oh, okay, okay, okay. Did you get my flowers in the? You didn't get them. Couldn't I send uh, some flowers? Ah, uh... uh, well. Okay, okay. Can, can I call you again? Uh, uh... Tomorrow, the next day. Now, whether it's the director or the audience or even Travis himself, one thing is made visually clear. We are embarrassed for him, and it's sad. This is definitely one of the most compelling portrayals of rejection that you're ever likely to see on screen. And it certainly sets things in motion for where his character goes for the remainder of the movie. Just amazing filmmaking. The final category would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. All around, this was just a crack team of cinematic masters, all bringing their A-games to the table, including Scorsese, Herman, Schrader, Foster, editor Marsha Lucas, who would perform a similar kind of magic editing the first Star Wars movie the following year, and DP Michael Chapman. I mean, wow, it's a tough call to choose one person who stands out among this group, but if I had to, it would have to be Bobby D. He is just incredible here, playing a truly iconic character with his own unique approach to it. I mean, he really went method in his preparations for this role. Losing 30 pounds, shadowing cab drivers around New York City, talking with war veterans from the Midwest to get their speech patterns just right, just doing rehearsal after rehearsal to ensure that every aspect of his performance was perfected in advance. There are just so many tricky scenes here, from his delicate interactions with the underage Jodie Foster to his awkward courting of Sybil Shepherd's Betsy, to one pretty uncomfortable extended scene in his cab with the director himself. Yet Martin Scorsese in a cameo, playing an unhinged, racist, jealous husband who's sharing way too much information with his cab driver in this instance. Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. You see the woman? I want you to see that one because that's my wife. But that's not my apartment. And I'm go I'm gonna kill her. There's <laughs> nothing else. I just I'm gonna kill her. What do you think of that? I said, what do you think of that? Don't answer. You don't have to answer everything. I'm gonna kill her. I'm gonna kill her with a 44 Magnum pistol. I have a 44 Magnum pistol. I'm gonna kill her with that gun. Did you ever see? Did you ever see what a 44 Magnum pistol would do to a woman's face? I mean, it would fucking destroy it. Just blow it right apart. De Niro is in virtually every scene of this movie, and he just truly carries this story, also showing us different angles of this character along the way. For delivering what might be the best acting performance of the 1970s, and there's a lot of strong competition there, Robert De Niro is the MVP. Can I ask you something, Travis? Sure. What is the one thing about this country that bugs you the most? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't follow political issues that closely, sir. I don't know. Oh, well, there must be something. Well, whatever it is, he should clean up this city here, because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just, like... They just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. 
Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis. My rating for Taxi Driver would be five stars out of five. This is just an astounding movie. And 46 years after its release, its legacy just continues to grow, which you could just see from this podcast, if nothing else. I mean, last week's two episodes, Falling Down and Joker, neither of those films would exist if not for this one. And if you're looking to watch Taxi Driver, it's currently streaming on Paramount Plus and the Roku channel. And that ends another unhinged review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.